We're in 1 Corinthians today. Uh, last week we started 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. We preached the half of it, and we discussed how the spiritually mature can know the things of God. Though God has hidden his plan since the beginning of time, he has revealed it to those who are his. We talked about how he has revealed it through the Holy Spirit, through the mind of Christ, through the teachings of other Christians, and how his wisdom is a free gift to anyone who asks. Now, the question is, if God has revealed himself and his truth and his gospel to us, what use is something that is revealed if it is never shared? What use is that? When I was in high school, I started researching colleges to attend. And the top college, my top choice, was a college out in Lynchburg, Virginia, called Patrick Henry College. It was a college that specialized in government studies. And I wanted to become Secretary of State, so that was the first great start to it, right there. So go to college that specialized. People call it God's Harvard. Uh, because it was a Christian school, but very high academics. I ultimately did not uh, apply, even though I was invited to, because they required a very lengthy essay, and I hated writing. So I took the lazy way out, went to my second choice, which did not require an essay, and here I am, and my life is spent writing. God is very ironic. They're at Patrick Henry College. It's a beautiful campus, if you ever go and attend. Uh, All the buildings are put in what's called a colonial revival style in their architecture. People have described it as the Hollywood set of an Ivy League campus. Very beautiful, pristine. But behind all these buildings is what they call Lake Bob. Lake Bob, it's a retention pond with no outlet. And you know what happens to retention ponds with no outlet? Anyone want to say? They stink. They get this green scum over the top of it. And so you see this beautiful campus, these beautiful buildings, and there at the back is this stinking green pond. Whenever a guy gets engaged on campus, they will throw him into Lake Bob. They call it Bobtisms. <laughs> Lake Bob is a metaphor for humanity. It is. Anything with no outlet goes stagnant, stinks, and gets full of green scum. Whether it is a pond or whether it is a human person. If you all just bring in stuff, bring in stuff, bring in stuff, but never has an outlet for anything you're bringing in, you grow stagnant. Paul, in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, not only does he say that God, the spiritually mature can know the things of God. But he says the spiritual, spiritually mature must reveal the things of God. Must reveal the things of God. Let's read the passage in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16 again. We read it last week, but hey. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, 
the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of God so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us your mind that we might know you. Not just know you, but live like you. To have wisdom and be spiritually mature. Lord, thank you for being the God who is with us, wanting to be known, desiring to be known, and making yourself so clear that we who are human, who are broken, who are depraved, who are messed up, who cannot understand things well because of our finiteness. You've made yourself clear that we could grasp you and become more like you. Lord, I ask that today, as we study your word, that you would become even more clearer. We've praised you for who you are and what you do in this world, and Lord, now I ask that you continue that work in our lives that we might know you, and in knowing you, that we might reveal you to the world around. Teach us what that means. Teach us what that looks like. And Lord, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul says that the spiritually mature must reveal the things of God. I love the last sentence that Paul writes there in our passage where he says, we have the mind of Christ. Such an amazing privilege, such amazing knowledge that we can know the things of God. Have you thought about what the amazing gift, privilege, responsibility that is? But unfortunately, that amazing gift, that responsibility, that privilege comes with a catch. Because having the mind of Christ demands that we speak the things of Christ. Because as I said, things with no outlet grow stagnant. So why does having the mind of Christ demand that we do speak and share the things of God? Why is that so? Well, follow with me now. First, the Holy Spirit has been given to us and we are taught by the Spirit. We are taught by the Spirit. We talked about that last week. But for those who may not have caught it last week, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, that what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Paul says that the spirit teaches us the things of God. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 14, verse 26. John 14, 26, Jesus said, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. 
Jesus said, the Spirit will teach us all things. Paul says the Spirit will teach us the things that God has hidden. What, so what are the things he teaches? Well, first, that he teaches us what it means to have assurance of our salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit also teaches what it means to be fully transformed and reflect the image of Christ to those around us. Romans 8, 12 to 13. Romans 8, 12 to 13. Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit also teaches us what it means to live in freedom. Romans 8, verse 2. Romans 8, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And right there, I just walked through Romans chapter 8 from the end to the beginning. Read it sometime. It is talking about the ministry of the Spirit in the life of a Christian. Boiling it all down, the ministry of the Spirit can be said that through the Spirit, we're able to understand the Word of God, what it means, and how to apply it to our life. That is the work of the Spirit, allowing us to understand the Word of God, what it means, and how to apply it to our life. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 to 17, Paul says, But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts, speaking of the Jews. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He says whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the Holy Spirit has given them, a veil is taken away so they can understand the Word of God. I've interacted with people before they have come to Christ. And we've talked about Scripture, and they've told me about passages of Scripture that they do not understand. And then they accept Christ. And they come back to me, and they're able to understand those same verses that they could not understand before. Because now they have the Holy Spirit teaching them and to understand the Word of God. It's like, it's like people are walking around in the dark, and all of a sudden, a light switch turns on, and they can see. There's a reason the Bible describes salvation as being brought out of darkness into God's amazing light, because you go from not able to understand, and all of a sudden, able to understand through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates so that we can understand. Last week, I talked about how the Holy Spirit is the instruction manual for our life. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. John says, As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. The anointing that John mentions here in these verses is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So all these verses say, from when I read Romans all the way to John, it says the Holy Spirit teaches us the ways of God just as he empowers us to live them. So that's the first step of why having the mind of Christ, we need to reveal the things of God to others. It's because the Spirit teaches us. Secondly, not only does the Spirit teach us, we are convicted by the things revealed. Have you ever taken time to consider the amazing things that the Spirit teaches us? Just sitting down and saying, wow, God, look at all the things you've revealed in my life. Paul describes the things that the Holy Spirit teaches us in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 10. We talked about this a little bit last week too. He says, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no mind has conceived, 
the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Paul isn't just talking about eternity here. He's talking about our daily life of having a personal, intimate friendship with the creator of the universe, the savior of our souls. Each day, the spirit reveals to us the amazing things that God has prepared for those who love him. Having the mind of Christ, yes, it means we are taught by the Spirit, but it means that we are convicted by the things revealed. Because what we're able to participate in as a Christian is beyond imagination. No human has conceived of the things that we are able, that we possess, that we're able to participate in having this friendship with God. I think about the days of Adam and Eve, not the days when they were in the Garden of Eden, there they, they, they were created. They didn't know anything else. They were walking with God, talking with him every single day. It was just what they knew. Then all of a sudden they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because they had sinned against God. That relationship was broken. And can you imagine what it was like for them having that broken relationship? Having known what it meant to have that close relationship with God and now all that was gone. The only way they could interact with God was through the sacrifices. But even then, that brokenness was amplified because they're killing something in order to commune with God, and it's not the closeness that was. They felt the distance with God. They felt the hole in their heart that only God could fill, and he wouldn't fill it for them. Can you imagine what they were going through? We know what it's like to have a broken relationship. We know what happens when families divorce and, and the brokenness that happens there. We, we see the awkwardness of a husband and wife who were intimate, but now they're divorced in their same room and that intimacy can't be had anymore. You take that awkwardness, that brokenness, that pain, that misery, amplify it, and you have what Adam and Eve had towards God after the fall. And I'm sure if we walked to them, up to them and asked them, they could not fathom anything that would restore them to what was. Yes, they heard the gospel for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said that Satan, the offspring of Satan, would strike the offspring of man and the offspring of man would crush his head. They heard it but I doubt they understood it. The amazing thing is that what God has in store for those who love him is better than anything Adam and Eve ever had in the Garden of Eden, which is why they can't fathom it. They had a time of perfection. Yes, they had a time of perfect union with God, but they didn't even then understand the fully perfect meshing of the holiness and love of God didn't understand what it meant that God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but everlasting life. They don't, couldn't fathom the sacrificial love of God because God kicked them out. Throughout the centuries, people knew the coming Messiah because of prophets. They knew that God was going to do something but throughout the centuries, none of these people who lived before us has experienced it because Christ came after them. 
Therefore, they couldn't understand this, this salvation we have in this intimate relationship with God we have. They never knew it. They, they saw it in a distance, darkly, blurly, blo- broken, but it wasn't there. Jesus said it in Matthew 13, verses 16 to 17. Matthew 13, 16 to 17, Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see, see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. We have what people for over 4,000 years, 4,000, 6,000 years longed to see. We possess what it means to be called a child of God. Not only do we have what the prophets and the righteous long to see and hear, but we have what the angels long to look into but cannot. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. He says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. The, the creations of God who have lived for so long, long to look into salvation, but they cannot. They cannot fathom salvation because they cannot repent but we can. We can turn to God and we can have an intimate, close relationship that so many people, so many things can not. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. We have an amazing gift. We have an amazing knowledge and we should be bursting at the seams to tell it. I love talking with young kids after Christmas. I come to church and young kids bring their favorite gift with them and they run up to me and they shove it in my face and they say, look what I got. They love it. They're bursting at the seams to tell it. I talk with older kids and adults about video games, about electronic drones, cars, camping trips, guns, sports teams, all these people. Everyone has something that they love to talk about, that they consider awesome. And why are we not bursting at the seams? talk about the God who has saved us, the God who calls us my child, who gives us forgiveness, love, who provides a place to belong, hope, and strength. Why are we not bursting at the seams? If we truly know what it means to know what no eye has seen, to hear what no ear has heard, and what no mind has conceived, We should want to tell it. We should. So the Holy Spirit has taught us the deep things of God. And hopefully we are convicted by what we know. We should then have concern for those around us who don't know. We should turn around and see the lost people around us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. Cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Like I said last week, he's talking about the non-Christian. This one does not have the Spirit of God. They can understand the things of God. They need someone to explain it to them. I think about Philip, who's walking along a road one day. It's described that he's walking south on a desert road. 
Now, when I think of south on a desert road, I think about Texas, and no one wants to be on a desert road in Texas like Philip is. But he's walking south on a desert road, and he sees a man sitting in his chariot. And it's not normal to see someone parked in a chariot on the side of a desert road. Normally, when someone's parked on the side of a desert road, that means something's wrong. So Philip walks up to this chariot to see what's going on, and he finds out that this man is reading the prophet Isaiah. Have any of you drove on a desert road before? Anyone? A couple people. Have you seen someone parked on the side of a desert road before? Few, fewer, okay, maybe so. Now, if you've seen someone parked on the side of a desert road before, is that person sitting on the hood of their car reading the Bible out loud? No, it doesn't happen. So Philip says something's weird here, and he goes up and talks to this man, and he asks him a question that would not come to my mind. Normally, I would say, is something wrong? Can I help you? Are you delirious? Something like that. Philip says, do you understand what you are reading? To this man parked on the side of the desert road. Do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. He knew that he could not. And so Philip finds out the passage that the eunuch is reading. And he says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from him. And the eunuch asks Philip in Acts 8, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip has this softball thrown into his lap to hit and starts explaining about Jesus to this man. Philip had compassion to a man who wanted to know but couldn't. How many people do we interact with who cannot know the things of God because they do not have the Holy Spirit in their lives? How many people do we gripe and complain about because they're not acting in a way that we think is correct or they're not speaking in a way that we think is correct because they don't know any better not having the Holy Spirit in their lives? How many times do we, do we bemoan the state of our nation, wishing it, is in a, it was in a different place, or we're worrying about what our grandkids are going to grow up in, but we forget that our nation is the way it is, is because people do not know Christ and they don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives to tell them the right way of living. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, speaking of his nation, Romans 10, 14, he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? It is a great, great question. If those around us do not know the Holy Spirit, they do not have the Holy Spirit, how can they know the things of God unless we stand up and tell them? We have what the world is seeking. We have the antidote to the pandemic of sin. We have the filling for the God-sized hole in the hearts of humanity. We have what other crazy metaphor you want to throw out there for what humanity needs. We have it. So why do we keep it to ourselves? Not to put the pressure on even harder, but to put the pressure on even harder. Not only do we have the secret they need, the missing key, but when we stick all the amazing stuff 
that we know about God in our pocket and not share it, we are disobeying the Savior who died for us. The one who gave us the ability to know him commanded that we take what we know and we share it. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. It's called the Great Commission. It's a passage that everyone knows, but so often all of us conveniently forget. Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus commanded us to teach what he has revealed to us. So if we have the mind of Christ, having been taught by the Spirit, being convicted by the things revealed, and being concerned for the world around, we better be revealing the things of God instead of just sitting on our hands, Paul tells us. Now, we all know what will happen if we actually start obeying God and teaching the things of God to those around us. We know what will happen. We could read about it in Paul's life. When Paul was in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the very people that he's writing this letter to, he has this experience in Acts 18, verses 12 to 17. Goliath was governor of Achaia, and the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, Goliath said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I'll not be judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. The Jews were beating Christians in front of the governor, and he did nothing about it. He said, fine, it's okay. Do whatever you want. Hard things can happen to those who actually talk about the things of God. Or as my point says, having the mind of Christ not only demands that we speak, but having the mind of Christ results in our situation. Results in our situation. Hard things happen because we have a Christian ethic, a Christian way of living. As we talked about last week, wisdom equals knowledge in action. When we have the mind of Christ, we are supposed to know what is godly and then do what is godly. Paul wrote to the Philippians, the passage I read to you last week in Philippians 2, 1 to 5. Philippians 2, 1 to 5, he said, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus did. That's what we're supposed to live like daily, hourly, minute by minute, as those who have mind of Christ. And if we live this way, we're going to be living differently than the world around us. We have the mind of Christ. With the Spirit of Christ, we know the wonderful things God has in store for us, and that is going to compel us to live differently than the world around us. In fact, we're going to live, live differently in a way that is completely different than the world around us. Thinking about some case studies, let's talk about marriage. What would happen if a husband and wife, every morning, read Philippians chapter 2 together and lived Philippians chapter 2 towards each other 
every single day? What would happen if in humility they valued their spouse above themselves, not looking to their own interest, but to the interest of their spouse? What would happen if they did this no matter how their spouse was acting at the moment? Countercultural. The culture tells us differently. The culture says that if a husband's being a jerk, be a jerk right back. If your wife is making you mad, just work longer hours. The culture, culture tears marriage apart, but the mind of Christ tells us to be one in spirit and in mind. Let's talk about school. Jacoby, you're the only person in school here today. Sorry. But there's other people watching online. What would happen if we did nothing out of selfish ambition or pride? What would happen if we looked out for the interests of everyone around us, even those who are hurting us? What would happen if we did everything without grumbling or arguing? What would happen if we voiced what the Bible said about morality and substance abuse, no matter who we were talking with? The culture says don't live that way. The culture says to seek revenge. The culture says to speak your mind. The culture says that our depravity, our sin, is normal and should be embraced. But the mind of Christ calls us to be different. We could talk about how siblings treat one another. We could talk about our conversations. We could talk about the words that we use. We could talk about gender roles. We could talk about the way we treat authority. We could talk about what political candidates we endorse. We could talk about all these different areas of life that the mind of Christ calls us to live differently. The mind of Christ affects everything, and it affects everything so much that Peter, when he was writing his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he describes us as a peculiar people. I've said this before in other sermons. I love the King James Version of that. A peculiar people. God has set us apart to be holy so much so that the world around us looks at us and says, you are weird, and we should stand up tall and say, yes, I am, thank you very much. Our Christian ethic, through our actions, through what we say when we bring the message of God to those around us, causes hard times sometimes because we are different. It throws up a barrier between us and the world around the culture thinks that the way of Christ is the way of foolishness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. When we act like Christ, everyone around us, is going to think we're foolish. Not only do they think we're foolish, but sometimes when we live a certain way, they're going to think we're looking down at them, that we're stuck up, that we're Mr. Goody Tushus because we have such a high ethic, such a faithful, virtuous way of living. I'm sure you might have had a friend or family member wonder why you were doing the way you were, things you were doing if you were living as a Christian. Maybe you still have friends or family who wonder why you are the way you are, that you're different from them, why you don't do the things that they do, why you don't find fun the way that they find fun. And relationships are broken because of that. Even though we don't necessarily throw up a barrier between ourselves and non-Christians, the nature of living as a Christian throws up that barrier. Jesus described his followers as a city on a hill or a candle in the darkness in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The thing about light, excuse me, the thing about light is there is a definite difference between what is light and what is dark. People know what is light. People know what is dark. And there's no mixture. Darkness and light do not mix. They don't. Light drives away darkness. Just as there is a barrier between light and dark, so there is a barrier between those who follow Christ, who live that following, and those who do not. And there is such a barrier that non-Christians will resent that barrier. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.15, 1 Corinthians 2.15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. The phrase here, not subject to merely human judgments, can be translated many ways. However, the, the meaning is the same. The literal translation is, he is discerned by no one, or he is evaluated by no one. Basically, those who do not have the Spirit, those who are not Christians, make evaluations and judgments about Christians because they do not understand them. And often those judgments hurt. But Paul says we are not subject to those judgments or those critical evaluations. Yes, they hurt, but they do not control us. Perhaps you've experienced some of that hurt in your life. Perhaps a classmate has said things to you or done things to you because of a Christian stance. Perhaps you've lost friends or you've broken relationships with family because of following Jesus. It hurts when that happens. It does. And I'm not here to minimize that hurt. But Jesus said that we shouldn't expect any less than what he experienced in his life. Jesus, John describes Jesus as the true light. In John chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, John says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came to the nation at that time that was considered God's nation. And God's nation turned their backs on him and sent Jesus to the cross. Because of what he taught, because he wasn't what they expected him to be. We could throw any sort of reasons out there, but the bottom line is God's nation turned their backs on God and had him killed. Jesus said it this way. He said to us in John 15, 18 to 19, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is the why the world hates you. So yes, having the mind of Christ results in our situation. It results in difficulty, pain, broken relationships. It can. It always has. Sometimes we don't feel it, but lots of times we do. So what do we do when we experience that pain? What do we do when that barrier is thrown up, when we're seeking to show the mind of Christ, to reveal the things of God, and resentment comes against us? We remember that we have the mind of Christ. As Paul writes at the end of the passage in verse 16, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. We are not controlled by the judgments of those around us. We are to keep living and keeping speaking and keeping sharing in spite of the reception that we receive. 
Because we have been taught by the Spirit, because we've been convicted by the things that we know, because we have compassion on those around us, because we have the mind of Christ, we keep going. We keep going. Christ promised that his light would not be overcome. John wrote in John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We know that we are on the winning team. We are. So let's not play like the losing team wants us to play. The losing team wants us to dam up the outlets of our lake. They'd say that it's okay for us to be Christians and learn about Christianity as long as we keep it in the church. This is the acceptable place. But we know that anything that does not have an outlet grows stagnant. We know that we know the things of God. God is revealing it to them. Therefore, we must share the things of God in spite of what people say. When I lived in Dallas, I worked for a missions organization that reached out to international students. Among other things, we led Bible studies with these kids. And a format of our Bible study was to teach them Bible study methods through the Bible study, but also teach them evangelism. So that when they went out to the nation, back to their nations that they came from, they would be equipped to start there and to share their faith wherever they were at. And at the end of every session, every Bible study, the students had to answer the question, with whom will you share what you learned today? And they would do it. These Asian students, African students, Middle Eastern students were so excited to learn the things of the Bible that they had no problem sharing what they learned back with their other students' friends from their own nation, even when they hadn't accepted Christ yet these non-Christian students would go back and say, this is what I learned from the Bible today. Can I share it with you? If they can do it, why don't we? Why don't we? Let us take the glorious things that God has taught us and let us share it. Let us share it. Every month, we get to remind ourselves physically of the amazing things that God has done for us by celebrating communion. Lots of times when we take communion, we eat the cracker, we drink the juice, we have this amazing special time, and then if you're like me, you go back out to your home and you start living your Monday and life goes back status quo. Maybe this nice time lasts until Tuesday, but once Sunday comes around, eh, that's why we have church every week. But the goal of these elements is not just to remember Jesus. It is to spur us to live that remembrance out. To take saying, yes, Christ died for us that I might know him. And to resolve with each bite and each drink that when I leave this building, I'm going to share him that I'm going to show the world around that Christ has changed me and he is so important to me that I'm going to take that to everyone I meet. And boy, when I say that, it's convicting. But it should be. Paul wrote, 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. About communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I can't do this translation. I'm sorry. And I left my other translation in my office. Can I borrow someone's Bible? I'm a horrible preacher. Thank you. Oh, dear. If I lose some place, know that... Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. I love how Jesus, he's always knowledge. He said, I'm giving these elements to you. You know them, now do them. Eat, drink, do the knowledge out. It's a symbol of our Christian life. These, these elements, as we know, they do nothing to help us spiritually. They do not save us. They do not make us more holy. They're just crackers. They're just juice. They don't change into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's just that. But even though it is just that, it's just in remembrance, is so special because it reminds us to live for him. To live for him. It reminds us to speak for him. It reminds us to be unified because we take and we eat the cracker together. We drink the juice together symbolizing that we want to take the knowledge of who God is and we want to live it out, not just in the community, but in our family, so that nothing would be broken, no relationship would be broken, just as no relationship with God is broken. We take some time before taking communion to pray together, silently, asking God if there's ways that we have hurt him this week, and we ask his forgiveness ask him ways that we should be more vocal in living out our Christianity among the community. And we ask him to help us. We also ask if there's anything between us and our brother and sister in Christ. And when we take the bread and we drink the juice, we are taking, eating, and drinking a promise that we will live for him. We will fulfill our half of the covenant, living for him, and that we will seek unity with each other. So will you pray with me? Father, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, the ones you have called your own by your amazing grace, saved by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you for forgiving our sins.
that we don't have to do anything to earn that forgiveness, but you've freely given it. You've called us to yourself. You've sanctified us and glorified yourself through us. Lord, we confess that we as a people have so often lived according to our own priorities, our own desires, our own plans, instead of taking what you consider important and the purpose of our life and living it out. We confess that we have allowed fear. We've allowed apathy. We've allowed so many things to get in the way of living as your people. We thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, we ask that as we remember you through your table, that you would spur in our hearts a desire that would not fade, to live our calling out. Show us what that means. Give us wisdom every single day how to do that. And Lord, I ask that you would continue to knit us to be a people that is unified for your honor and your glory. Thanks, Father. Amen. Could I ask Jean and Dean to come and help? Paul writes that the Lord Jesus, when he'd given thanks, broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken, that we might know him. Celebrating, let us eat it together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me.
the blood of, of the Lord Jesus Christ that was spilled that we might share him. Celebrating, let us drink it together. If you could hold on to your cups, throw them away on the throw them away out. <laughs>